Rising. We have another very exciting show for you today. Brianna is here. Hello. Hello. All right, let's get to it. I'll start us off, <laughs> Robbie. Well, the person responsible for leaking a trove of classified U.S. military documents is a gun enthusiast in his 20s who worked on a military base, according to reporting from the Washington Post. The Post spoke to members of a small online group of about two dozen men and boys who say this person uploaded the documents to their Discord group chat. The individual responsible for the leak, named OG in the Post reporting, claimed he worked in a secure location on a military base and hand transcribed the documents near verbatim to post online. When that became too tiresome, he started posting photos of the original documents instead. There are still more questions than answers when it comes to OG's motives. The small invite-only online group to which he leaked the papers began meeting in 2020 and were brought by their, quote, mutual love of guns, military gear, and God. And OG, the group's de facto leader, quote, claimed to know secrets that the government withheld from ordinary people. Meanwhile, new revelations from the leaked documents shed light on how the blob actually feels about the state of the war in Ukraine. CNN reports the documents detail weaknesses in Ukraine's defense weaponry, predict a likely stalemate between Ukraine and Russia is to continue for months. In fact, officials don't expect any peace talks to take place this year, meaning we could see fighting extend well into 2024 at the very least. Now, the documents also detail a startling near miss in October of last year. Russian fighter pilot mistakenly thought he had permission to take a manned British spy jet and attempted to shoot down the plane and failed only when his weapon malfunctioned at the last minute, which is terrifying. You know, it's a uh, it's, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis type stuff all over again, something that could bring us, you know, to the brink of yeah. global I mean, nuclear holocaust. Both of these stories headline military malfeasance. What is going on here? Let, yeah. Let's start with the first one, because I know that you read up on this one. I did. So I this have. is very interesting, and I think should probably put to rest the ideas that I know a bunch of people had on, on all sides of the spectrum that this leak was done with an ideological purpose, either to make Ukraine seem in a bad position and then and thus sympathetic so that we need to fund them even more and we need to really you know really contribute to their defense that was one theory another theory was maybe it was done by a pro russian person to show look, look this is the, this is you can't ukraine is losing they're going to lose time for some realism um, neither of those things seem to be the case mm -hmm. so the person who leaked it works on a military base, is in his 20s. Um, so, so the Post actually was able to review some video footage of who they think it is at the gun range. He's like a gun enthusiast, mm -hmm. um, kind of an anti-government uh, perspective, um, militia-ish from what I'm understanding. And he was in this private Discord server with all these other dudes. And for people who are blessedly not online and don't know what Discord is? So Discord is, a, I mean, it's a social media platform. You can set up private. It's a chat room, basically. It's extremely popular uh, with people, I would say, who play games, who mm -hmm. play online games. And in fact, video games was part of their reason for meeting, to discuss first-person shooters, gun video games. Um, the, per the person the Post spoke to is a, is a very young man, is underage, actually. Huh. So, you know, they were talking about video games and guns, and it seems like the leaker, uh, he was like the leader of this group because he had all this interesting info to tell them about, the government. Like, his motivation really, it seems, was to impress 
his friends online. And okay. so he would do transcripts, annotated transcripts mm -hmm. of the intelligence. He'd been doing that for months and months and months. And then people were not engaging with it enough in the Discord server. So then he started just posting the actual photos to be like more impressive. And he said he sent a couple posts saying like, "You guys aren't commenting. You're not responding to this. Like, I'm not. I'm going to stop doing this unless you're really going to engage with what I'm showing so you." So it was a so gamer that, posting to impress the boys <laughs> in his chat room. Yeah, yeah. So that's. That's what it appears to be. Look, this is uh, reporting from the Washington Post. It was pretty thorough. They interviewed someone in this uh, in this chat room. They said they were available. They were able to view actual footage of the guy. Always, a ch this is all allegedly, reportedly, so on. It's possible they got this wrong, but it, it looks pretty solid to me, and and actually fairly plausible, frankly, because what I said, yeah. remember I said, if the leaker has an ideological motivation, you know, dumping this stuff in a Discord server where it languishes mm -hmm. for a long time doesn't make any sense. So yeah. given that that's what he did, this actually, this this does make a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it really lined up on this one. The non physicality <laughs> of it ended up panning out. Okay, so point Robbie on that one. You, you sort okay. of predicted that, that sort of an outcome. The second story, I mean, it has the vague whiff of the, the kind of um, U.S. drone uh, uh, Russian warplane incident that happened also uh, earlier this year, last month, I think it was. This one is even more of a close call, where because of some kind of miscommunication between the ground and the Russian plane, the Russian plane the pilot thought he had permission to take out this British plane and only didn't fire and potentially make contact because of a technical failure with its own weaponry. What happens in the alternative? Because we have seen people say over and over again, countries have to pay, there has to be some kind of retribution, there has to be some pushback, things, even if, a, if it's a mistake, there is definitely a political force that says mistakes even had to be met with a level of force that could escalate into a full-on conflict between two nuclear powers. Is this how close we are to the brink at all times? It's terrifying. I mean, mistakes should be met with reflection about what caused the mistake, because mistakes can result in uh, greater um, uh, confrontation and war and nuclear attacks. Yeah. You know, we came this close. Everybody knows now that we came this close during the Cuban Missile Crisis mm -hmm. to a full-on nuclear confrontation, and that cooler heads prevailed at, like, the very last minute. Um, Mistakes happen in war all the time. They, they happen on all sides of every conflict, going back to the, the beginning of history. People, people kill people on their own side all the time. Sure. That's, the U.S. has done that in Afghanistan and Iraq. We've, we've kill, our, our soldiers have mistakenly killed our own people. Uh, I'm sure the other sides have as well. This is this is the danger of war. Even war done for the best intention and for good reasons, there can be mistakes. Which I'm not sure. I'm not sure this yeah. is the case, but yeah. it's it's very scary. And the reality should be: how can we ramp down tensions rather than ramp them up? What can we do to contribute to? talks to a ceasefire. Now, and unfortunately, the Biden administration has rejected out of hand the idea of a ceasefire. Yeah, I mean, there is this concern that, you know, a ceasefire entrenches the current Russian position, which means that Ukraine is basically ceding this territory and acknowledging a territorial defeat, mm -hmm. at least. And, you know, uh, we talked to a guest yesterday, people should uh, 
listen and reflect on that if they want more details about what some foreign policy experts think is the likely likely outcome. But it does seem like the refusal to, to concede anything on the part of the West, because that looks like a Putin victory, is getting in the way of substantive negotiations here. It'll be really interesting to continue to watch the role that, you know, China plays in some of these negotiations um, and whether cooler heads will ultimately prevail. A ceasefire would save Ukrainian lives. That's what I don't understand. It would save Ukrainian lives. It would save Russian lives. It would, it would, again, and now if they can't, and, and if at that point a diplomatic resolution cannot be achieved, there's always the sad and unfortunate option of going back to military conflict. Yeah, I don't understand point. why you wouldn't pause That's a it. good point, because I, I do think that there is a presumption of permanence when you talk, in the talk of a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. um, that isn't necessarily true, because I do think the counterargument is, you know, we can think of any number of other conflicts or imagine a world where there was an invasion of U.S. territory, and we wouldn't be quite so glib, perhaps, about saying, well, you know, they got California, what are you going to do? we got to save the Midwest, right. <laughs> you know? But the reality is they do have California. I mean, in this, in this, in this an well, analogy, yes, but, they do have that territory. They also, occupy it. But that analogy also ignores the, you know, this is a, is a situation where America had been involved in a civil war for a number of years, where... Californians right. really wanted to be a part of Canada, and there was some, you know, there were there was a democracy issue at stake well, as and well. Much, and do they have self determination? And if and, California was being invaded, how much military aid would we get from Europe? <laughs> what would they be doing to help us? You know, we're 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 the major funders of the defense of the Western world. Right. Well, I mean, this is I mean, this is the argument that we talked about last week, also in that I think uh, interview with that Bill Clinton gave recently, where just to moot this, give the counter-argument, Bill Clinton's Bill Clinton's saying the only reason that Ukraine doesn't have the ability to defend itself yeah. right now is because we encourage them, Clinton encouraged them, that administration encouraged them to denuclearize with the guarantee of U.S. protection. So there's, I think, a bigger question of why we keep putting ourselves in this position and what how it benefits us to well, be able to posture as the world's sure. policeman because we've made these I mean, I guess if you want to say we're obligated to help Ukraine because of the terrible position we put them in, not real, not just with the encouragement of denuclearization, but with the dangling NATO in front of them, mm -hmm. thereby antagonizing Russia without actually bringing them into NATO. Mm -hmm. I mean, that I, I can understand the logic of that argument. Yeah. I mean, there, a lot of mistakes were made along the road to where we are today. Yeah, well, definitely an, an odd set of stories uh, yes. for the position of the American military. By the way, that uh, the young man uh, who was interviewed by the Washington Post said he will not, he says he expects law enforcement to, to be in contact with him. I presume if the Washington Post has pieced this together, the FBI or whoever's investigating this has already pieced it together. Uh, it would be crazy if the Washington Post beat them to it. It'd be some real fine detective work there. <laughs> uh, but he has said, the young man said he will not cooperate and he won't give up OG's identity. So he would rather, he would sooner go to prison than betray his best friend. Okay, I just well, I hope his, I hope his parents are involved <laughs> in these negotiations. All right, coming up next, I will tell you what's on my radar. You won't want to miss it. Stick around. We have some breaking news. The New York Times has identified the alleged leaker of the Pentagon documents as Jack Teixeira, a 21-year-old member of the intelligence wing of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. Again, this is according to interviews and documents reviewed by the New York Times. 
Journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted on the matter. We still don't know who leaked the draft Dobbs ruling because that went to a liberal corporate outlet. We still haven't seen the manifesto of the Nashville shooter because it's inconvenient. But this leak was put on Discord, so media outlets are hunting for him. He goes on, a big part of what's driving this, many corporate media employees most hate those who do what they pretend to do, expose the secret crimes and lies of the U.S. security state. Those agencies are their allies and masters. That's why they're hunting to find the leaker instead. So it is notable here that, uh, that the New York Times and Washington Post, uh, we, we talked about the Washington Post reporting on this Discord server earlier today. The New York Times now actually coming up with the alleged name. This is before law enforcement action has been taken against mm -hmm. this person. This is before the FBI or whoever else is investigating it um, uh, has, or, or at least before they, they took action. It, for all we know, they had a suspect in mind and they were gathering intelligence before they acted. We, you know, we don't know that for sure. Um, I definitely take Glenn's point here because, I, and I, I understand the, the discontinuity between you know, the media has a, a, a zeal to protest to, to protect leakers if they come to the media and if they if they give I think liberal media minded people if they're speaking to that kind of worldview Robbie. and then they're not going to protect them but but obviously there is no expectation where I, I think maybe they're missing uh, Glenn and others are missing the mark is there's no obligation for the the, the New York Times and the Washington Post to like not try to figure out who this guy is. He just, he posted these documents online. Right. Media, not liberal media or conservative media or corporate media or independent media. Media journalists as a principle protect their sources because they want to give sources an incentive to bring to newsworthy information right. forward. This one is not ideological. The fact that the New York Times protected their source over the Dobbs opinion isn't something people should be upset about just because you maybe liked the outcome. Also, it didn't change the outcome. Conservatives won that one. I don't understand how you can even yeah. be mad about that. Well, I mean, someone who is not the source for the Dobbs Right. A, a journalist outlet, a, a, a liberal media outlet, could figure that out. Right, and we, we couldn't saying, even figure out the ideological valence of why anybody leaks the Dobbs opinion. Yes. Now the the leading logic is frankly that it was a conservative who leaked the opinion. So like, I don't even understand the politics of what that's supposed to mean. We want journalists to protect their sources. This guy, maybe because of his youth, naivete, generalized ignorance, who knows? I, who knows anything about this person at this point? But he chose not to leak sensitive government information because he had a political agenda, not because he was trying to bring forward evidence mm -hmm. of U.S. war crimes in a way that I think has been very heroic by certain other leakers and actions. He simply wanted to impress, it seems the impression so far, is that he wanted to impress the other guys in his Discord channel. And I'm sorry, the consequence of that is that it's a newsworthy story and that journalists across the political spectrum are going to try to figure out who you are. I mean, there I, is no obligation here to protect him because he didn't come forward to a particular news organization. Yes, I agree with that. Independent or otherwise. I agree with that. Obviously, media outlets were going to try to figure out who it is. I mean, his motive now, to be clear, his motivations for doing this don't matter from the standpoint True. of whether this is information that the public ought to know True. as we form our opinion about the ongoing Ukraine sure. 
Russia conflict. Sure. You can have you can have bad motivations. You can have you know leakers and whistleblowers have had motivations as simple as revenge against uh, their colleagues or a boss Absolutely. or something. Or 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 I would like to actively damage Hillary Clinton's campaign because I hate her. Absolutely. Here's some, like, who cares? Yeah. The point is, does the information matter? So so that it should still be the case. However, yes, I, I agree with you that because he didn't bring this to a news outlet and and um, and and do it that way, of course, and he like he didn't he posted it online. If you post something online, eventually people are going to put two and two together. Um, and he was posting it like lots of material over a long period of time and increasingly risky ways for himself because he wanted more attention. Uh, allegedly, this allegedly. is what The Washington Post reported this morning, because he wanted more attention and accolades from the, uh, the other young dudes hanging out with him on this in this like video game chat group. Yeah, and I, I didn't I didn't bring up. You're right. I didn't bring up the um, motives in an effort to uh, kind of undermine him, but the idea that like journalists are soliciting, or, or not, I should say that, but the journalists are are open to uh, information like this that you know. Are, that they want to protect sources mm -hmm. is because of an effort to get newsworthy information. Now, mm -hmm. there's a world where you, one could criticize a mainstream news ne network if they, like, rejected this information because the State Department told them not to cover it, right? That's a way to critique liberal media, yeah. saying that they don't want to even report, as happened, they don't even want to report on the contents of the story because... You know, the government has told them not to, and there's this argument that they are, you know, doing doing the blob's bidding. That's a perfectly legitimate critique. But I just don't understand the posture of saying protecting right. sources is good, but this guy wasn't anybody's source, and so also journalism doesn't require us to find out as much about this story as possible. And also, it could be the case, mind you, that a source gives something to one journalistic outlet, and that other journalistic outlets, mm -hmm. again, corporate, independent, liberal conservative well, right. also try to find out who the source is. And if somebody wants to make a splash but they don't trust the mainstream media or liberal media or corporate media, I mean they can they're also they could go to the Intercept or Reason magazine, they could come to it rising, yep. they could go to breaking point. There's a yep. lot there's so much independent um, of all bends. But that's not media. what this guy was about. That's yeah, the only reason I bring it up. Like, like that just was not his goal. That's <laughs> what he was about. So, you know, people are also asking questions about why it is that this uh, gentleman who was an airman in the uh, uh, Air 21 National 21 years old. Very, must be a very junior person. Right. Why did he have access to these documents if they were so sensitive? Is this an internal issue? Can he really be blamed? As we talked about earlier today in another segment, he at first was handwriting out the content of the documents and, and submitting them yeah. to this Discord channel. And when that didn't get enough attention, only at that point did he, I think, you know, expose himself more and start uploading photographs of the actual documents. I mean, this is a mess. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting that again that the FBI or other government actors had not taken any action yet against this person. Uh, as his name comes out, so uh, yeah. so I'm sure we're going to continue to learn more uh, about this individual and uh, and the situation. But uh, this might, you know, prompt calls for greater uh, consideration of who is handed um, confidential documents yes. in the garage next to your right. Ferrari. Or if, again, if they're not <laughs> actually sensitive, if they're not act actually confidential, they should not be labeled as such. If they have Actual secret information, like the locations of U.S. assets or, or high-level strategic thinking that cannot be made public. Okay, but this stuff, fine. 
this 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 story seems to have. I don't know these, that this qualifies. A lot of this stuff. It's just it's just realism about the Ukrainian situation. These documents seem to have a lot more geopolitical significance than anything that anybody pulled out of Mar-a-Lago or Joe Biden's garage. That's well, we don't even well, making. sure, we don't even know what the significance of those things are. No one has said. That's I mean, fair enough. Yeah. Although. I mean, I'm not overly impressed by the the. Uh, but, I mean, I, I think, again, I think the American people ought to be filled in to the greatest extent possible about the reality of the situation in U Ukraine in order to make a decision about whether we're going to continue funding this resistance. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making any, any claims about whether or not we should have knowledge of this or the yeah. journalistic value of reporting on what was in these documents. But the reaction um, from mm -hmm. the— State Department seems to suggest that this stuff had significant—it was embarrassing for all involved. Yeah. Um, and again, the re another reason—sorry to cut you no. off—another reason to go through a journalist—like, pick a journalist you trust. It's absolutely fine to not trust the mainstream media, but find someone who is responsible because, rather than just wholesale dumping all this information— you can get feedback from someone who goes, oh, I, well, here is something that, you know, could put someone in harm's, maybe this could lead to a, again, a U.S. asset, some being embedded, being identified sure. by Saudi Arabia or, or Iran or Russia or something and put them in harm's way. We're not going to do that. There are, the journalists are professional people and, and not all of them, but find someone you like and trust to do it. That would be the right way to do it so that you avoid things like that. Yeah. But that's not what he did. He just posted them all. To impress his friends. Yeah. So. Well, we have a little bit more from the Times report. It was not immediately clear if a young Air National Guardsman in his position could have had access to such highly sensitive briefings. Officials within the U.S. government with security clearance often receive such documents through daily emails, one official told the Times, and those emails might then be automatically forwarded to other people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that. there you go. That's exactly how it happens. Yeah. So. If this is a, lot, a significant problem of internal mismanagement, and the fact of this guy's access to these documents suggested to him that they must not have been that sensitive. It would be regrettable if the if the book really came down hard on him when, frankly, he never should have been exposed to this stuff to begin with. But we'll see how this all plays out. We'll have more rising for you right after this. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie. Even in advance of his official campaign kickoff, Bobby Kennedy Jr. is already polling at 10 percent in the Democratic primary race, starting off in a better position than Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg ever did in 2020. But despite this clear advantage, the mainstream media seems disinterested in understanding why so many Americans are open to his campaign or to the campaign of Marianne Williamson, who has surpassed pundit expectations by polling at 4 percent and who was winning the digital race with an incredibly successful TikTok campaign. Certainly, both candidates benefit from widespread frustration with the Biden administration. Only 37 percent of Democrats want Biden to seek a second term, with a majority saying, actually, I'd like to get off this ride. And perhaps that's unsurprising, given that most Democrats in 2020 indicated that their vote for Biden was more of a vote against Trump than an endorsement of Biden's specific brand of politics. And time has not improved Biden's prospects. Biden will be 81 in 2024, and 68% of voters say his age is a concern, including 48% of 
Democrats. And while concerns that Trump would mishandle the COVID pandemic led many in 2020 to suck it up and vote for the alleged adult in the room, Biden now has to stand by his record of COVID policies, which have angered the far left, who are furious that COVID-era policies like the Medicaid continuous enrollment provision have now ended, thrusting 15 million people off of Medicaid, as well as voters across the political spectrum who feel like the CDC was slow to correct policies that failed to acknowledge, say, natural immunity, and which shut down schools and businesses for too long, in their view. Instead of acknowledging his mistakes, Biden has waged a war against so-called dis or misinformation, making contrary opinions on COVID verboten in the virtual public square. And while conservatives seem keen to ban TikTok, Biden is said to recruit an army of TikTok influencers to help boost his chances in the election. Now, I would recommend that Biden actually try, you know, fulfilling some of the campaign promises he made to young voters, like continuing the student debt pause in lieu of outright cancellation, standing up to big energy interests who just won a huge victory with their Arctic drilling licenses, and, you know, I don't know, actually maybe sending out those promised checks. But Biden's campaign strategy seems to be to stay out of the way and run from the proverbial basement the way he did in 2020. But does that approach hold up when the basement is obviously a choice rather than a COVID-era requirement? Now, it's still early, but polls show Biden losing to both Trump and DeSantis, with Trump surging even after or perhaps because of his indictment. So to the extent that Biden was able to secure votes in 2020 due to the perception that he was the beat Trump candidate, it's not even clear that that deal with the devil will pay off in 2024. So no wonder Democratic voters are looking further afield. Now, despite this clear appetite for someone, anyone else in the Democratic primary, the mainstream media channels have shown no curiosity about the other options in the race. Perhaps it's expected that news networks staffed by former administration officials and administration staffed by former MSNBC journalists would circle the wagons around the establishment choice, but it's still disappointing. Luckily, some of us in independent media are happy to tell you what the candidates are all about so you can make up your own mind about your vote. Now, in a recent piece in The Nation, veteran journalist John Nichols wrote a well-researched piece into RFK Jr.'s electoral strategy. According to Nichols, RFK Jr. is betting the house on New Hampshire, hoping that the Kennedy name still packs some punch in New England, where his uncle JFK won the state and the party's nomination back in 1960. RFK Jr. is hoping to capitalize not just on his name, but on the fact that New Hampshire residents are bristling over the DNC's decision to rig the primary order, stripping the Granite State of its first-in-the-nation status. Notably, Marianne has made a similar case. I interviewed her New Hampshire state director on Bad Faith Podcast last week if you'd like to know more about her plan to beat out the establishment Dems in that state. Now, when the DNC changed the primary order to prioritize Biden's stronghold, South Carolina, Kennedy wrote an op-ed for New Hampshire's largest newspaper objecting to the switch and positioning himself as a lifelong Democrat from a, life, a family of Democrats in lifelong service. Some local politicians saw the move as cynical, but it could be a savvy one. 
Unlike so many so-called journalists who cover RFK Jr. exclusively as a vaccine skeptic, if, of course, they cover him at all, Nichols detailed the candidate's appearance last month at St. Anselm College Forum in Manchester, New Hampshire, where Nichols explains, quote, prospective presidential contenders often test the waters. Nichols says Kennedy positioned himself as a Democrat who would run as a champion of the environment, an advocate for working-class families, and a critic of corporate power. As Kennedy tweeted last month, if I run, my top priority will be to end the corrupt merger between state and corporate power that has ruined our economy, shattered the middle class, polluted our landscapes and waters, poisoned our children, and robbed us of our values and freedoms. This was a message that served both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump well in 2016, environmentalism aside <laughs> from the Donald Trump angle. And it's easy to understand why voters who've been paying attention might be willing to overlook some of Kennedy's more controversial positions on vaccines and autism for a chance to finally topple the corporate duopoly. Like Trump and Marianne Williamson, RFK Jr. has never held elected office. But in a country where corruption is a voter priority, that could be seen as a benefit particularly among independent-minded Granite State voters. If Kennedy or Marianne having a good showing in New Hampshire, uh, have a good showing in New Hampshire, rather, it may force the media and, more importantly, the Democratic Party to take them seriously as candidates. As it stands, it's not clear that the Democratic Party will even allow a debate. And debates, of course, are one of the few opportunities that relatively unknown candidates who haven't spent decades languishing in the swamp have to introduce themselves to the American public. Notably, Williamson was the star of the first 2019 debate. She was the most Googled candidate in every state but Montana, where Montana Governor Steve Bullock beat her out. Had Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, to a much lesser degree, not occupied the progressive lane in 2020, who knows where that debate performance might have launched her. After all, there is a strong appetite in America for an independent, anti-corruption, anti-war candidate and Biden is refusing to fill that role. Mainstream pundits dismiss both Williamson and Kennedy for their outsider status, but as outsiders, they both manage to attract huge alternative audiences. Both are prolific authors, and like most Congress members, Kennedy is an attorney after all. For nearly 30 years, in fact, Kennedy was a senior attorney for the National Resources Defense Council, a nonprofit environmental organization. And earlier in his career, he served as an assistant DA in New York. He also served as an adjunct professor at Pace University for over 30 years. So presenting Kennedy or Marion Williamson as fringe after such accomplished careers might say more about the silos of corporate journalists than the viability of the candidates themselves. Now, that's not to say that concerns about Kennedy's choice to promote an unsubstantiated link between vaccines and autism aren't legitimate concerns. But many voters are going to rank their priorities and decide that avoiding World War III with Russia or freeing Julian Assange and having a genuinely pro-environmental candidate are more important than some fringe scientific beliefs. And perhaps that is why, ahead of his April 19th official launch, Kennedy is already doing better than every 2020 Democratic primary candidate not named Biden, Sanders, or Warren ever did. I, for one, am glad both he and Marianne are running. Better democracy than a coordination. So I was curious. I mean, it was difficult to find any reporting on what RFK was even running on um, 
outside of, you know, headlines that say vaccine skeptic running, which I take the point, fine. Uh, but then I saw this great piece written up by John Nichols in The Nation and decided, you know, let's, let's give that some energy, let's give that some oxygen, because otherwise people would have no idea what the options before them actually even are. 100%. And unfortunately, I would continue to expect um, the mainstream media to when they're not outright ignoring him, to only discuss um, his long-running, which, to be fair, is a real thing, his long-running vaccine skepticism, even predating the current kind of discussion about specifically the COVID vaccines or the mRNA vaccines. But um, for, for, many, for many Democrats, elite Democratic power brokers, it will be as if he either doesn't exist or is just you know, running a single-issue campaign on, on that issue. That's why I've said, honestly, he would get more attention on the Republican side. He'll, he probably will get more attention from Republicans. But, uh, yeah, I take your point and obviously agree with you that competition is always good. I would love to see a debate uh, involving those three, Biden, Marianne, and uh, RFK, and, and anyone else uh, who might be running and, you know, registering something. You can't just say, I'm running for president and get to be on the debate stage. But if, if you have some base of support, uh, that is a healthy thing for democracy. It's not something to disdain. But of course, you know, the Democratic Party doesn't even want, they don't even want to have actual primaries. No. They don't want any competition whatsoever. No, so I, I've heard some people argue that, you know, it, it's better for, say, Marianne Williamson's chances. And, you know, I think her politics align more than mine, more with mine. Although I would say, uh, some for, on some foreign policy aspects, it might be the case that they, they align more with RFK Jr. Mm -hmm. But someone say, some would say it's bad for Marianne if RFK is in the race because it splits the bolus of people who want anybody but Biden. At the same time, I do think that the more people who are participating in the primary, especially at a higher profile, it makes it difficult, more and more difficult for the Democratic Party to justify basically just shutting down the primary process, especially after they got so much heat for doing that with Hillary Clinton back in 2016. And there's so much animosity still bristling over those kinds of choices, over that rigging of the election, if you will. Now, I will say I had some questions earlier on about why, given the appetite for RFK Jr. on the right, he would choose to run as a Democrat. And I do think that this article shed some light on, you know, the dissonance between wanting to kind of trade on your family name as a Kennedy from, like, the quintessential Democratic political family um, and running not as a Democrat. I don't know that he could uh, parse that. And I, I'm curious what you think. Hmm. Is it possible, you know, do you think that conservatives are going to hold something like running as a Democrat as a Kennedy against him, or whether or not he's made the right calculation that let's, let's not create dissonance with flipping sides as a Kennedy, and let's hope that people understand who I am enough to cross the aisle of vote? I don't, honestly, I don't think the Kennedy part of it is an issue. Kennedy is kind of Boomer nostalgia, frankly, mm -hmm. and, you know, from a uh, time period where the parties were much less, uh, the sides were much less partisan. I mean, you know, Kennedy's policies and platforms are not really so discernibly in today's parlance. They're not sure. so much more Democratic than they are Republican. He was not a, I, I would not say he was not an extremely left figure, was he? Kennedy? John F. Kennedy, you would say he was a very left figure? I would say that a pro-civil rights figure. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I mean, he was not, um, a, he was not was a left figure pro, on foreign policy. Pro, yeah, well, he was nobody, not a left figure on economics, particularly. Well, well, there's no left figures on on foreign policy in the United States of America. That's the nature of the blob. But yes, I would say that the Kennedy family, uh, being pro-civil rights, being pro-social safety net, fundamentally puts them at odds with the core 
um, ethos of the Republican Party, like fundamentally. And I do think that much of um, RFK Jr.'s record in terms of environmentalism, it's a, you, environmentalism is kind of also fundamentally, essentially, large, mm -hmm. big government. These are these are agencies and institutions I mean, that are tasked honestly, with I, I feel protecting like I've heard our environment. A lot of liberals describing Kennedy as not sufficiently liberal. So I, I don't well, really sure. have a stake in this. I'm just that that, I would, mean, like, that I, was my thought of what the perception I mean, from people me, in your camp was. You're putting but I don't me in a tough position as a leftist, <laughs> where obviously I don't think a, a whole, any Democratic president has ever been sufficiently left. But if the binary we're talking about here is whether or not he would run as a Republican or a Democrat as a Kennedy, and whether someone like you know, yeah. Actually, JFK would ever, you know, and again, replica, the, the, the flip happened more recently back then, and the, mm -hmm. the realignment happened more recently to JFK's time. But in a contemporary America, would JFK, knowing what we know about his politics, uh, align with the Republican Party? That seems like very far-fetched to me. Now, that doesn't mean that RFK Jr. has to follow in that, that, uh, those, those footsteps, but the way that he framed himself as a Kennedy in that op-ed he wrote in the New Hampshire paper, it does suggest to me that you know, his version of trading on that legacy or tapping into the goodwill of that legacy, he at least sees it as inextricable from the Democratic Party. And I wonder if also he has relationships and can get his foot in the door because of the family name within the party right. apparatus in a way that he wouldn't be having the, the Republican Well, like party. I said, I don't think being a Kennedy will hurt him really with with it. Being, being a Democrat, Democrat yes, of course. I mean, to, to the extent Republicans or, or conservatives are going to be willing to support him, it's, it's because they don't, they probably don't feel like he's a big threat to like like supporting him in order to harm Biden or make Biden's path to nomination a mm. little bit more fraught is it's probably more a strategic thing of that nature mm. but we'll see yeah we'll certainly see. The, certainly his some of his views will red, uh, will um, resonate resonate with yeah. conservatives yeah so sure. we'll see more rising right after this Twitter CEO Elon Musk and Representative Lauren Boebert have called to defund NPR after its exit from Twitter yesterday. The departure comes after Twitter classified NPR as government-funded media, which the outlet said, quote, undermined public trust and its editorial independence, according to The Hill. Musk tweeted yesterday, defund NPR. This appearingly came after Musk received an email from NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen in which he asked for a comment on NPR's decision to leave Twitter and if it will cause a chain reaction among news organizations. Boebert responded to Musk's defund tweet with, I've been saying that for quite some time, let's get it done. Musk's call came hours after the House GOP account tweeted the same thing, defund NPR. Uh, I would like to defund NPR personally because I don't think funding the media is a role the federal government should play. Uh, but uh, I think the loss of them on Twitter is kind of sad. If all like if all the if all the liberal media outlets leave Twitter because Elon has picked fights with all of them, who what, what is it going to be the point? This is going to be true social or something. This is just going to be yeah. a conservative. And I don't think it would take talking. all of them. I think it would take like three. Yeah. I mean, because here let's let's paint the picture. We live in a private, corporate media culture mm -hmm. where, the, where a handful of billionaires own all the top papers. There's been an aggregation of media. Local media has died. We have seen consequences in the quality and type of reporting, the levels of investigative journalism versus take journalism, which is cheaper to produce and yields more benefit for corporations. Okay, that's the backdrop of all of this. In that context... If, you know, two or three or four of these mega media conglomerates were to drop off the site, the Washington Post, New York Times, et cetera, 
it would have a devastating effect to the value of Twitter for journalists who, frankly, are the lifeblood of the app. Say what you want to say about us. That, that is the mm. truth. That is why it is has so much value right. as an RRS. Well, even for, for right-wing people, they want to dunk on the, the tweets from The Washington Post and The New York sure. Times. What are you going to dunk on if sure. they just leave? Now, there, I'm sure people will fill in and yeah. other sites will pop up that just also just post for them, you know, that mm -hmm. they will, you know, aggregate the news and will continue to post and they will, the, the, the articles will exist on the sites. Journalists will still exist in their individual capacity and post their own content and things like that. But I do think it would be very meaningful and really hurt the site if those, if those uh, papers were to leave. The flip side of that is that I think it's a really interesting dynamic where there's this argument that government-funded media, with the requisite firewalls, et cetera, that it do exist, is more susceptible to corruption and more problematic than a paper like The Washington Post being owned by a billionaire like Jeff Bezos, where we've seen headline after headline you know, do, do, you know, doesn't everybody have to go back to work? You know, isn't the minimum wage actually good if it's lower? You know, like, do you really need food, guys? Like, all of these clear kind of propaganda headlines that seem to be pushing in the direction of more austerity and corporate greed in a way that happens to align with the editorial preference or the, the economic Mm -hmm. privileges or, or desires of the ownership. I'm not saying there isn't or aren't potential issues with state-sponsored media. And I do think government-funded and state-sponsors are, are, are different things, by the way. But most countries that we have shared tradition with, like England, like Canada, et cetera, have all had a tradition of having a government-funded media because they understand that there is value to having some media that is independent from the need well, of as, advertising. As you pointed out, those of, countries do not—their government-funded media does not always function editorially independently. Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, covering for the crown absolutely. with the BBC in England. I don't think— uh, but, the, but the question yeah. is, Robbie, we're saying that corporate media doesn't function independently, and there are also issues with government-funded media. So what's the solution? Is the solution just getting rid of government-funded media or any counterbalance to corporate media? Or is the solution letting all mini flowers think... bloom? Or is the solution trying to even improve upon government-funded media? There's no counter—I mean, NPR and The Washington Post mostly have the same views on things. And they're mostly defending strongly. a neoliberal, democratic, Biden worldview. I disagree. I don't think that—honestly, I don't think uh, NPR— or the government-funded media in the U.S. faces substantial pressure or anything from government? Although, I, I don't know. I didn't think Twitter and other social media companies were facing substantial pressure from government until we revealed question. that they were. Yeah. Mostly, my opposition here is more philosophical and first principles-based. I don't think the U.S. taxpayer should be on the hook for funding a a viewpoints they might disagree with. I don't any of your tax dollars are going to support the proliferation of viewpoints that you don't you don't agree well, with I mean, and that's, I think that's you an have an obligation not, not to do that. I mean I know you maybe you're a libertarian and you don't think that people should pay taxes, but that's an argument against all taxes. I don't want my taxes to go to war. I don't want my taxes to go yeah, to I think Texas. This would be great. I don't want my taxes to go Fantastic. To, so that not being in the world that we live in, many people understand that first of all, we're using this word government funded media, but we should be talking about publicly funded media. That is an argument to saying, I don't want public parks. I don't want public swimming pools. I don't want public libraries. I don't want a public police force. I don't want public fire departments. I don't want public sanitation. I think some of those things are, are more um, 
understandable our, our jobs of government. I don't think funding the media is a job well, for government. Well, many, the, the, the rationale Due is— Due to our First Amendment tradition. The rationale is— I don't know who to trust. If I'm a public citizen, I very much see it as in my interest. Now, how it's manifesting is a different question, mm -hmm. but it's very much in my interest. I would happily give my tax dollars to have a media institution that's not being funded by BlackRock, that's not being funded by a defense company, mm -hmm. that's not being funded by ExxonMobil. I think part of the issue with NPR is that they have had to take corporate funding. In recent years, the left criticized them roundly for this a few years back, and I think that it has change the quality of their coverage to the, in a mm -hmm. neoliberal direction. I, I would agree with that. So it's difficult to even tell what part of my problems with NPR are because it's government funded mm -hmm. versus because it's not publicly funded. In the, in the 80s or 90s, there was this effort. Conservatives have routinely tried to defund public programming, defunding PBS. And there was this, you know, it's very famously uh, Reagan, Reagan voter, Reagan Republican um, Mr. Rogers testified before Congress about the value of maintaining PBS, the value of children's programming, Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers Show, those are some of the most beloved cultural products we have in this country, and they all came through publicly funded media. We're not going to suddenly not have enough children's programming because we don't have Sesame Street. There's so that's, much that's children's not the programming question, though, available. Roddy. Look, if you want to sacrifice, if you don't see the value in those that programming, if you don't see the, if the value in it, then you can say that. people think that programming is valuable, they can pay for it willingly, and it will do just fine. All right, so get your HBO Max, or maybe they're just calling it Max now. Get your Max subscription so you can Speaking pay $12 decisions. a month and access something that used to be free and something that used to be really proud as a Crowdsource funding for media and reporting and journalism you care about. That's a good model moving forward. There are people thriving under that model, and that's great. I think for all the money that we spend um, on war, I think for I mean, all I don't want to spend any of the money on, on the war. <laughs> for all the money that we spend on uh, bloated congressional uh, uh, sal you know, they, they, mm -hmm. you know, they pay themselves increases and they don't want increases for the American public or minimum wage, for all of the waste and fraud that exists in society, to say that there isn't a public interest in us having some control as citizens over our media. Now, if you want us to have more control, if you want there to be some more publicly elected boards that... Uh, assess programming and make these kind of decisions to diversify programming to have no more citizen sir investment, I do not want then that. that's a different that kind of a question terrifying. but I don't know how you can look at the media landscape in this country and how local media has absolutely been devastated by these corporations and not will not think that as a community that we shouldn't pull pool our collective resources to try to make sure that we have some kind of a press that's actually operating on our own benefit I mean should the daily caller get should be, be publicly funded? Should the Daily Wire be publicly funded? I mean, the, the diversity that there is in no, no, the no. ideology of the media using, is greater than ever before. Using public money to give to private institutions is not the same thing as but, a I mean, publicly funded— That's what we're talking with NPR. No, it's no, it's not. If you have an issue with how NPR, the programming NPR, how NPR is run, those kinds of things, that's what I'm saying. I don't. I'm just saying I don't one, want to pay for it. One could design any kind of public— infrastructure, media infrastructure that you wanted, but this weird fundamental opposition to the idea that if public funds, if our dollars, that, that citizen paying, citizens paying for broadcasting is more corrosive and, and corrupt than Jeff Bezos paying for public 
having control over our entire if media it's government, infrastructure. It's, it's bizarre. There's no That's option. That's not true. This weird conflation between authoritarianism and government has got to stop. There is authoritarianism that comes down through our, the corporations that literally control this duopoly that we live in right now. There, of course, none of my money is taken from me and given to the Washington Post. It's there, taken from me. Well, it is in your subscription. But there, there, well, that's because I'm paying for it. Right? If you want to subscribe to NPR, you can pay for it. That's what I'm saying. It should be your choice. If it's government-funded, it's not a choice. You can sit here and say it's authoritarian for me to have a library because my money was taken from me and given to I the mean, New York you Public Library. You can, you can say, man what I'm saying. But, Bobby, there's no difference. If, if you have evidence of authoritarianism, describe it. Of course there can be authoritarianism in all different kinds of contexts. But doing these flat comparisons that say if it's the government, it's authoritarian, well, then you have to acknowledge. I mean, honestly, there are more things I Bobby, wish I could check a box on my taxes to, and say Bobby, I don't support this. I think constraining the government's ability to, uh, you keep bringing up war, I think that would be a great idea. Then we could find out that the American people don't want their tax dollars going to a lot of these things, and that would be Act probably be better for the cause of non-authoritarianism. But so I'm was, just picking a fight on this one so, little thing right so now. So as I was saying before, if you say that the government is authoritarian, then of it's not a straw man for me to say, well, what about all these other government functions? And if you acknowledge that public libraries are authoritarian or the fire department is an authoritarian, then you it is incumbent on you to make some distinction, to make an argument as to why you think it's valid. The fire department is a legitimate to use fund of one and not government, another. the library, I don't think Honestly, I don't think the loss of public libraries would be very damaging in the internet age where you can find all the information you can get in. What a physical repository of books. This is available at the click of your fingers everywhere, but fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would disagree and a lot of people find a lot of value in a lot of public services. If they find value, then they can pay for it. And if you don't find value, you don't have to pay for it. That would be my agenda there. All right, but. sign off in this in the comments. Let us know what you think. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Former Obama White House stenographer, that is an official White House position, we just learned. Uh, Mike McCormick is his name, and he's alleging that Joe Biden knew his son's every move, including his international business deals. Here is McCormick on Fox News. I've left the White House. I'm writing books, and I get a hold of the Hunter Biden laptop from Marco Polo. Uh, they're a nonprofit, an anti-corruption nonprofit. About a year and a half ago, I started writing a substack based on what I find. And then I go back over what I knew happened when I was working for Joe. I found the transcript that I wrote about that briefing. That's when Jake Sullivan starts talking about fracking. And b because of what I'd read in the laptop and reported in my Substack previously, I'm like, wait a minute, Joe Biden knew Hunter Biden was already on the board on April 18th. Joe Biden knew. He directed Sullivan to go back and talk to the press. This is a conspiracy. This is a crime. This is public corruption. McCormick also said he went to the FBI with this information and nothing yet has been done. According to Fox News Digital, Hunter Biden's former business partners and associates frequented the White House 80 times when President Obama was still in office and even met with then-Vice President Biden's team on multiple occasions. President Biden has consistently denied having any knowledge of his son's business ventures, but visitor logs at Fox News Review tell a somewhat different story. So this is pretty interesting. Uh, there might be a there there, uh, they're here, yeah. <laughs> to use the appropriate 
wording. So this guy, Mike McCormick, um, was a was an employee within the Obama White House. And he is saying that his role was to sort of record, transcribe, record um, uh, statements that might be made by top officials, by the president, by the vice president, um, I think at times where the press is not on hand. And he says that he transcribed this conversation where, where Jake Sullivan talks about um, the, the fracking and Burisma. And this is just a few days after after Hunter Biden is on the board of Burisma, and this is going to this is going to create jobs, and it's going to be a payment to Burisma, uh, which and then this this money for the Ukraine energy sector was approved sometime after that. So th this puts in a, a piece of the puzzle. This would establish that at least Jake Sullivan. I, now, I mean, you could try to poke holes at it. You could say maybe. Joe Biden didn't know Hunter Biden had—it was three days earlier. Maybe Jake Sullivan did this without Biden's awareness. Maybe someone else instructed him. But this would establish, potentially, that Joe Biden—if he—that he, Hunter Biden is already on the board, and now here's an action being taken that would ostensibly benefit this company. Um, is this directing, you know, U.S. foreign policy money in some sure. way? Uh, it's interesting. And— Sure. The, FF, the FBI should follow up on it. So it's interesting that they have not chosen to bite as of yet. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some reasons why they might not that have a little less to do with protecting Joe Biden and more to do with how pervasive this kind of nepotism and self-dealing mm -hmm. is in government, generally speaking, and not well, wanting sure. to, you know, get the proverbial camel's nose under the tent. Uh, but what another the, the second part of this is also interesting because Biden has basically set himself up by saying, I didn't know anything about my, my son's business practices. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an overly broad claim. I mean, I, have a, I don't have the best sense of what some of my friends do for a living. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But like, I, I, to, for me to claim I have Your, no our, our knowledge Our friends don't have the it. best sense of what we do for a living <laughs> right, because it's sure. very confusing. What do we do for a living? <laughs> sure, but like, for, we have like such a definitive claim. Like, I have no idea what my, my son is, was, is doing in his business practices. Mm -hmm. It invites people to poke holes in it, and that's exactly what this Fox News story does. It says, okay, well, look look at how four business partners, um, a vice president, two assistants at Hunter Biden's now-defunct firm, visited the White House more than 80 times when Biden was vice president. So, I mean, sure, there's a world where you're coming for— you know, I think one of these was like a, a Jewish holiday event, you know, other kinds of parties and things that happen at the White House. You're not necessarily getting into the brass tacks of people's professional life. But it does obviously increase mm -hmm. the implausibility that Biden has as much ignorance as he's claiming. Now, if he has set the bar lower for himself and said, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm familiar with my son's business practices, and that's precisely why I was so guarded and made sure that there was no overlap. I think that's a much more credible statement. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost negligent not to know enough about what your kid is doing to make sure that there are ethical guidelines in place. But, I mean, he has invited, I think, exactly this kind of critique by not taking this story more seriously early on. Yeah, I would say you can't dismiss this guy out of I mean, this guy was a, was a Democratic official. He was an official in a Democratic administration. Sure. So we have to at least 
you know, listen with some attention to what he's saying, and I, I think there should be some, some follow-up here. Now, Hunter Biden has kept a low profile amid ongoing congressional probes and a federal investigation for tax fraud and alleged international business deals. But recently, he's been seen hanging out at the White House a little bit more often, attending this year's Easter egg roll, joining the Biden family over the holiday weekend at Camp David, and also accompanying his father on a trip to Ireland this week, which, if nothing else, is a reminder that I mean, they are close. Um, of course. They're, they're, well, I mean, some families yeah, I, are strange. That's why I some, myself. Some parents and their kids don't get along. Um, yeah, I think I said, of course, my of course was sparked yeah. by what we know. Um, we know Biden has genuine affection for Hunter and worries intimacy. about him. And, yeah. And, yeah. 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 It, it's, I mean, yeah. the, with the context is weird, but it is sweet. I mean, they do seem genuinely close. But again, that's what begs this question yeah. of how we could possibly believe yeah. The level of distance Separation. that he pretend that Biden proclaims exists between he and his son's business no yeah. knowledge of his business dealings. Not to say that there's necessarily anything inappropriate, but he's disclaiming any kind of knowledge of it. Yeah, it really merits looking into. And w while I take your point on you know maybe the, at this level what McCormick is alleging is a kind of you know corruption that. Is is so pervasive? It's not even rising to the level of something. But no, no, that's not. I wasn't saying that. I'm saying that it's so pervasive that nobody wants to look into it on oh, either side of the okay. aisle because it would implicate yeah. too many people. Yeah. Well, and remember the FBI said they didn't want to look into various elements of this because it was too close to an election, and they didn't want to, you know, give the they didn't want to pull the James Comey or whatever with the Clinton sure. emails. Which, okay. When, when are you going to get to? It's it's always within some time right. period of election. There, right. There's no. We're always in election mode. Honestly, there is the reality of how things work now. Yeah, I, it's also I'd be remiss not to mention how uh, divisive an issue fracking has been, specifically with Biden vis-a-vis -vis the rest sure. of the Democratic Party and progressives specifically. You know, there was a moment in time when the broad liberal position was very antagonistic to fracking. We were seeing videos of people, particularly in parts of the country that Biden is from and that have been really devastated by deindustrialization, turn on their taps to see flames and other horrible things shooting out. Um, you know, we have been focused on the kinds of environmental harms that are happening in places like East Palestine. Fracking has yielded all kinds of toxic effects in communities across this country. Rust Belt. Um, you know, hard hat kind of traditional, traditional Democratic Party union-based communities. And then for Joe Biden to take, to basically have this radical shift in the middle of the, the, the primary campaign and say, yes, fracking, more fracking, we're going to do the fracking, after proclaiming no more fracking earlier on, mm -hmm really radicalized and irritated a number of um, progressives. And if there were some context that motivated why he would want to take that kind of a political hit within his own party, this would offer, you know, some mm -hmm. something like this happening behind the scenes would offer some motive to t make a move that was so um, um, negatively received within your own political ranks. Was it negatively received on the Democratic side? Yeah. I mean, I, there's... I mean, more Democrats oppose fracking than support it? Is that the case? Uh, so what actually happened was the polling shifted along with Joe Biden's opinion. Mm -hmm. So when he was saying, when Democrats were largely aligned with saying that fracking was bad, most Democrats thought that fracking was bad. And there was, I believe, if I recall correctly, a 20-point swing that happened over the course mm -hmm. of 2020 because of Joe Biden's shift on this issue.
Mm. So polls, polls tell you something, but not a whole lot. People are very influenceable. I said this yesterday in my radar about Edward Bernays and how, you know, that's the power of lobbying and political messaging and getting, you know, high-profile figures on your side to take certain positions because the public largely just puts their trust in people and then thinks that the people are going to have their back. And people like Joe Biden. He seems like a good guy. He loves his kids. He eats ice cream. He loves his dog, etc. Uh, and so people are willing to follow his lead, which can sometimes be a good thing, but it can sometimes be a very dangerous thing. All right. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. New reporting from the Washington Examiner reveals that two nonprofit groups connected to the Global Disinformation Index, a British think tank that aims to fight disinformation online, are, quote, refusing to disclose key details about their operations, citing a federal exemption law on harassment. The two entities involved include the Disinformation Index Foundation and its public charity, Disinformation Index, Inc., reportedly gave the Washington Examiner, quote, heavily redacted copies of their 2021 IRS tax returns. A lawyer for the two groups is claiming that the redactions were made because the groups are the target of a, quote, harassment campaign. According to the examiner, this is a claim that, quote, multiple tax experts warn does not allow them to hide information on officers, board members, and in the case of one group, omit the source of a donation, end quote. Mm. Twitter Files author Michael Schellenberger tweeted, the Global Disinformation Index, which encourages advertisers to boycott disfavored news outlets, claims it offers transparent data and intelligence. But now it's been caught redacting its IRS forms to hide the names of board members. So this is infuriating to me yeah. because the Global Disinformation Index is, is one of these misinfo cops mm -hmm. that gets government funding, funded by the State Department, that assembled that list of the 10 riskiest news sites. And the, the magazine I write for Reason was on it. Uh, their goal is to stop advertisers from working with your site. And they, they have all these, um, these uh, uh, reports and press releases and things that are like, you know, these sites are bad. Look at how they were spreading racist conspiracy theories about lab leak. And we know how that turns mm -hmm. out. Um, they, but they dinged specifically reason for uh, for three things that I, I didn't even know what that actually meant. It was authorship, attribution, sourcing, or something like. All our articles say who the author is. We link to sources. We publish corrections. So it, it didn't make sense. But the the nerve of these people to yell at you for not having sufficient authorship and sourcing and correction policies when they hide. Who is working with them, who is who is funding, who's giving them their donations, who's on their board. And in fact, I caught them. They had Ann Applebaum. They said Ann Applebaum was their journalistic board advisor. Hmm. She's a well-known writer for The Atlantic and some other things. And uh, she got attacked. Uh, I was one of the people attacked. I was criticizing her for being involved in this. But I emailed her and said... And to ask her about her involvement in this, which was more than anyone else did, and she responded in saying that while she had once had a conversation with them years ago, she had nothing to do with it. She did not consider herself an advisor to the group in any formal capacity, despite her name being on the website. So then they stealth edited their website to remove her name hmm. without without saying they'd done that. So no, they violated no every single right. one of the policies <laughs> that they said makes you one of the riskiest news outlets. And this is my problem with all of these disinformation people. They do not walk the walk. They, they, they are hall monitor type people for you, but then they are, they, they do not, they're not rigorous enough to avoid misinforming people, the public, 
more broadly. So it's rank hypocrisy, and I'm so fed up with yeah, it. And, seems, and especially that their government funded is disgusting. It seems like, I mean, your point about, um, you know, you attacking her, which I, I don't, I, let's use a different word. Uh, I you criticized, criticized her, on Twitter, her. You pushed yes. back on Twitter. But Elon Musk responded to it, so she got a lot of criticism after sure, that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, but the, the justification they've given here for redacting these IRS forms is that these groups have been a target of a harassment campaign, which may or may not be the kind of thing that you're describing yeah. here. And we have also seen a trend. Of course, real harassment does exist at times, but we also have seen a trend right. of people kind of weaponizing the idea of harassment. Right. What, if, what if we lost advertisers at Reason? Could I say we were the target of a harassment campaign because right. you said things about us that were false and made up? Right. And there's not going to be a, you know, a, a write-up in the Washington Post by the, the tech reporter who writes about online right-wing harassment saying, oh, this, this group was innocently harassed. Like, that would never happen for us. That only happens for Nina Jankowitz-type people yeah. when they get the, you know, they can dish it out, but they can't take it. Yeah, this is part of a broader project. I mean, in the same way that you are taking information that you don't agree with and characterizing it as misinformation or disinformation, you're taking criticism that you don't agree with and characterizing it as harassment. And this is part of these, this kind of language game that I think has generated some good faith, legitimate pushback from, I mean, across the political spectrum, but, it, it, you know, it's been identified with the right against some of the newfound, newfangled language that's been used um, that kind of ramps up trauma and ramps up, you know, characterizes everything in these clinical terms that gives it more heft, weight, and force in an argument, but isn't really a there there. And so you have these weapon, this weaponization of language that really can distort what's happening on the ground, which is that I think the real bullies in this situation, as you've described them, and as you described them in that really great radar you did about a month or so ago about this subject, are the ones that are claiming victim status. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it really infuriates me. And, you know, it goes to the heart of what the Twitter files were getting at more broadly, which is it is true that there is this coalition of nonprofits, media outlets, and in some cases, government agencies that are that are, have weaponized the concept, in my view, of dis misinformation, disinformation. Not all the time, you know. S sometimes there is, you know, really bad, not true, incorrect stuff out there, and and it is the job of journalists to identify it. But it has also resulted in a lot of restrictions on speech online that were not really well thought out. I, I think a lot of heavy-handed moderation. And it is not, it, it, is, it is good, it should be transparent at the very least. We should know that it's going on. And I, I really wish this project would continue. So it, it is frustrating, as we talked about yesterday, that this, uh, this partnership uh, between uh, Taibbi and, and Musk, at least, maybe Schellenberger as well, uh, is, is coming to an end because of Elon's like wounded pride about a kind of trivial thing, uh, because yeah, there mean, was a lot of good journalism being done. And, you know, I, it, I would like for also to continue. It seems like it's not just because of Taibbi and Musk's um, fight. When, when, as we covered yesterday, uh, Musk in that that Twitter, Twitter, what do you call it? Twitter Spaces conversation right. was asked about uh, the future of the Twitter files night before last, and says. I think it's, you know, it's, everything has to end sometime, basically. I'm loosely paraphrasing. Um, you know, that's very disappointing. It seems like the project in, a, in its entirety is ending. And, it, and it, it raises questions about the level of investment people had in the underlying principle, which I think 
is an important one to be invested in um, versus how much it was about painting a mm -hmm. picture of a new Twitter that's different from the old Twitter um, without really there being any interrogation of whether or not substantive changes have been made in the new Twitter. Yeah, it feels a lot like new boss, same as the old boss, right? Yeah, now. And, and that the Twitter files, this would be tragic if this is how it ended up because mm -hmm. there was so much usefulness in the substance of the reporting. But from Elon's perspective, it seems like he's dropping the project as soon as he's accomplished his goal mm -hmm. of branding himself as someone who's made a departure from the mistakes of old Twitter. At the same time that we've seen him make very capricious moderation decisions, choosing to ban the journalists that were covering the Elon Jets account, making decisions about very, you know, very capriciously whether to bring back Kanye or leave Kanye or, or bring back Alex Jones or leave Alex Jones on the basis of his, the personal tragedies he's experienced or his personal friendships as opposed to standards that would be equally applied to everyone, even if you're not a celebrity who happens to be friends with Elon Musk. That's exactly the kind of criticism that he's been making. Mm. That's the, the critique he's been making of like, the blue checks, oh, it shouldn't just be for elites. Well, if you're making decisions about content moderation based on your friendship with other elites, then how can we trust that what's really driving your decisions around blue checks is about elitism as opposed to you trying to make more money? And are you just using people's sincere investment in equality and having a more egalitarian app to kind of launder your own financial objectives? I suspect we were only just beginning to peel back the layers of this coalition of disinformation and online censorship. So to say, mission accomplished, the project is all done, that feels premature to me yeah. and deeply unfortunate. Yeah. We'll have more Rising right after this. Congresswoman and former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is pushing back against fellow Democrats calling for Senator Dianne Feinstein to resign. And on Wednesday, she told a reporter, quote, it's interesting to me. I don't know what political agendas are at work that are going after Senator Feinstein in a way that I've never seen them go after a man who was sick in the Senate in that way. Pelosi's rebuke comes after California Congressman Ro Khanna took to Twitter urging Feinstein to step down, tweeting, quote, it's time for Senator Feinstein to resign. We need to put the country ahead of personal loyalty. While she has had a lifetime of public service, it is obvious she can no longer fulfill her duties. Not speaking out undermines our credibility as elected representatives of the people. Congressman Dean Phillips joined Kana in calling for the longtime senator to call it quits. Feinstein has not been in Washington since early February after being hospitalized for shingles. She released a statement yesterday confirming that though her recovery has taken longer than expected, she, quote, intends to return as soon as possible. In that same statement, she asked to be relieved of her role in the Senate Judiciary Committee until coming back to the Senate, but according to a political report, her close confidants on the Hill are feeling some angst about her ever coming back to work since her absence. Work in the Judiciary Committee has come to a grinding halt. Currently, 14 of President Biden's judicial nominations are pending. The panel has already had to cancel three committee markups for nominees. This is incredible own goal on the part of Democratic leadership to allow Senator Feinstein to remain in office. Um, she is holding up. I mean, this is, this has to be, you have to be having flashbacks to RBG not retiring. It is Most so definitely. similar. It's even affecting, it in the same way, uh, judicial appointments of Democrats. I mean, right now, she's Republican's best friend right now. She is, look, she is very, 
very old. She's 89 years old. She'll be 90 in June. It's clearly everybody ages differently, but there is plenty of reporting now that it is affecting her mental state. That she there's a lot of people close to her have said she doesn't really know what's going on. We're not even getting into this. Isn't even a cognitive and now, impairment yeah, this issue. is she is having actual health issues that have kept her out of Washington, so that the business of this committee cannot Correct. move forward. Look, that's it's just obviously not acceptable. She she should resign. It's California. There's not even a risk, really, that I, 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 she's gonna she'd have an appointed replacement or something. Like Republicans are not gonna wrest control of this seat somehow because she takes she steps down early, which is you know not the same. Uh, there have been other scenarios where that would not be the same thing. The Ruth Bader Ginsburg comparison is an appropriate one. Because at the time, whereas many folks that were more independent-minded or on the left pointed out that it was an incredibly bad form for her not to step down during Obama's first term, he obviously had some issues with appointments in his second term. Mm -hmm. But she, her stated rationale for not stepping down was that, of course, Hillary Clinton was going to win and that she wanted her replacement— she wanted a, the first woman president of the United States of America to replace her. So purely on the basis of hubris, much like Dianne Feinstein, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had ongoing health issues, no cognitive impairments, but was struggling with pancreatic cancer, which is one of the most, unfortunately, lethal kinds of cancers that there are. And so the sheer hubris to stay in office, knowing how much weight puts on, is put on that decision. And at the same time, when Hillary Clinton did lose, what was incredible was so many liberals didn't put the onus on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And when Dobbs, when, when Roe and Casey were overturned, they didn't put the onus on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the liberals that said it was she boss girl power feminism to say that she should stay in office as long as she wants, that it was independents like myself, Green Party voters and the like, who caused abortion to be overturned, not the, the selfish choices of one woman. So here we are again with Dianne Feinstein in just recently now, we were all told that it was sexist in much the same way that Nancy Pelosi is saying this now, that it's sexist to argue that a judiciary committee member should step aside so that the work of appointing justices can get done. By the way, the, the work of appointing justices, the Supreme Court, these federal courts, is so much the bully pulpit of, Democrat, of the Democratic Party to get disaffected Democratic voters to fall in line and vote for them. Their whole raison d'etre of the party at this point is just, okay, I know you hate us, but we got to keep the courts. Yeah. Even that being the case, they're sitting here and telling us that feminism, this faux, silly, I don't remember them feminism. saying this about a man. <laughs> I mean, I guess is she impugning Fetterman there because Democrats are not calling for him to be— replaced or something like Maybe. that. Maybe. Look, if Fetterman was missing some votes that was holding up a committee that yeah. was, wasn't able to, then they, then he should have also said, take me off the committee. If that's, yeah. you know, this is obviously something that could have been done and now they're doing it. I don't know why it's taken so long, frankly. Is it a personal pride issue? Is it everybody tiptoeing around her? No. The second she wasn't there for the first vote, they should have just taken her off. It's not like she's, I'm sorry, contributing much, obviously, to the workings of this thing anyway. So if, if, the, if the cognitive impairment stuff from the last election cycle didn't get you, the shingles certainly should. And it's ridiculous that at this juncture, it's considered to be sexism to point out the obvious. It is, it is hilarious. I mean, it's darkly funny, not funny really at all, but it, it, for Nancy Pelosi to go there, it's just, that's the easiest, most natural thing for a Nancy Pelosi or a Hillary Clinton type to reach for, right? It's like, well, how, uh, you know, how dare you come for, you know, strong women? There's a place in hell if you're not standing up for them, that kind of thing. Now, I will say, Nancy Pelosi is a very 
fit in together 83. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, this isn't like an ageism issue, but the problem with Nancy Pelosi is her having been in Congress for 30 plus years. Uh, and the fact that we have a, a handful of names and political dynasties that rule our entire country. Moreover, her making these shifts to uh, de-escalate calls for uh, reforms with respect to Congress members being allowed to do insider trading, changing the schedule around to those kind of very popular uh, forms of legislation that it was very uncomfortable for her to oppose, don't actually uh, get a floor vote. These are the kinds of things that she should be more concerned about than um, pantomiming some bizarre kind of girl boss feminism. Yeah, we continue to be ruled by the oldest government ever in the history of the country, and they just, they cling to power. People just don't retire. They, they live longer than they did 200 years ago, and they never give it up. Now, I will say, Ro Khanna got some pushback over this because uh, people perceive him to be kind of self-interested, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, him, with designs of being a senator himself. Well, he's not going to have an easy I mean, path to it. There's a lot of people. Katie Porter wants it. Yeah. Barbara Lee wants it. Um, Katie Porter just got hit with a... One might characterize it as a hit piece, one might characterize it as journalism, whatever it is, with accusations that she is in an abusive relationship with her husband. I mean, this is about mm-hmm. to be a really ugly race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is about to be a dirty, dirty fight because it's a, it's a big seat. It's an important seat. There's a reason why I'm sure uh, Diane Feinstein hasn't wanted to let it go. I mean, California is the what nation's biggest economy. Mm-hmm. It, it, it would be like the fifth biggest economy in the world. But she was in an abusive marriage, right? Because they're not. Oh, yeah, um, they were, they're separated. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they had they had decided to separate, but then live in the mm-hmm. same house. And apparently that was a toxic stew that le- led to a number of behaviors that people are saying, if the genders were reversed, hmm. would look very bad. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to get it too far yeah, into that yeah, particular yeah. story now. Maybe we can cover it at another time. But that, I think, is evidence of the kind of thing you're going to see coming out of a race that it's as, as hotly contested as this one. Yeah, it should be hotly contested. Amazing. Well, we'll get to the work of the Judiciary Committee some point, <laughs> some point in the future. Republicans have to be loving this, just loving this. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay, more rising right after this. More Bud Light, Dylan Mulvaney news. Apparently, quote, no one at the senior level of the company was aware of Bud Light's polarizing partnership with Dylan Mulvaney. Sources close to the situation claim the company is also allegedly pausing its marketing efforts and scrambling to implement a more robust process for evaluating future influencer partnerships. That comes after sales reportedly plummeted after the Mulvaney partnership. So big emphasis on uh, reportedly. I mean, a lot of this has been a social media phenomenon. Mm-hmm. There was a viral video of a um, kind of a it seemed like an alcohol stalker walking solemnly through a store talking about how Bud Light sales were down and how he's not going to be able to feed his family anymore. There is a lot of performativity about all of this. You covered earlier in the week um, Kid Rock shooting cans of Bud Light, Bud Light uh, in frustration with this Dylan Mulvaney partnership, only to endorse a brand of hard seltzer that reveal Caitlyn Jenner is a spokesperson of. A lot of inconsistency here. But Caitlyn Jenner is a good transgender person because Caitlyn Jenner is a conservative, so it's different. There, there you have it. <laughs> there you have it. Um, look, I think that there is a really counterintuitive thing that's happening here with... Um, the Dylan Mulvaney story, 
I think there are aspects of this which are, I think, frustrating. The fact that she's become famous so quickly when there's so many trans people who have been activists and who've been in this fight for so much of their lives. It is a little odd from my perspective to have like someone who's just fully an influencer be foregrounded in this way and to get so many opportunities. She's apparently uh, earned over a million dollars since becoming um, this kind of uh, ad advertising TikTok it mm -hmm. girl. But the effect of the conservatives making such an example of her is that she is being paid more and becoming more famous. Um, someone posted a chart of um, the mentions of her name over time, and it is spiking like crazy right now. She's being Googled like four times as much as Joe Biden ever since the end of last month. And it kind of feels like the people who hate her the most are enriching her, frankly, by, by making her like the cause celeb for people who want to defend her. Yeah, there was rights. a Matt Walsh tweet about that. Do we have that? What did he say? He said, uh, well, so he was disagreeing with you there, but mm -hmm. I think you're probably right. He said, I see conservatives on this site complaining that the right made Dylan Mulvaney famous. This is a lazy take, not correct. The left selected Mulvaney as their new mascot. Uh, Dylan Mulvaney was going to be The famous. left did no. that, or did Bud Light do that? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, is <laughs> Dylan Mulvaney a well? This is I. Some conservatives don't use. I. Uh, well, did liberals I use do that? The word did, left did very carefully because I sit next to you and Thank I you. understand I the it. distinctions between liberal, Democrat, progressive, left, etc. Um, I, I think a, a lot of people on the right. It's all. But even Marxism that being said, did Democrats are Democrats running Bud Light? Is that is it the Anheuser Busch? A family left left wing Democrats, or are all I mean, of these? They, for all I know, they Democrat they donate to Democrats, but you, you, I I I would I mean, double check it, but I actually think that's not the case. I think they're very conservative, but I I think that the all of these business people are making decisions not based on Democrats or conservatives. Just like all of these companies give both the Democrats and conservatives, mm -hmm. they're making these decisions because they're business decisions. There are 330 odd million Americans. Some of them like rainbows on their beer cans, so they issue some rainbow beer cans. Some of them like, I don't know, fatigues on their beer cans, so they issue some fatigue beer cans. Some of the people who like fatigues are, you know, mm -hmm. random black fishermen guys in the South. Some of the people who like rainbows are gay log cabin Republicans in Illinois. Like, we cannot be so reductive with our politics at this point. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it, it's certainly the case that it's it's building up Dylan Mulvaney's profile, regardless of whether it's it's uh, benefiting uh, Budweiser. And, and also, you know, there's a kind of, like, I saw Chris Rufo tweeting about this, too, uh, lamenting the inability of right-wing people to be uh, vaunted to celebrity status the way a Dylan Mulvaney can be. By media cover, by mainstream media coverage, progressive media coverage, corporate coverage, et cetera, and you know that, that is a fact of life that does motivate a lot of conservative grievances with just the mainstream culture and and elites and big business in general. Is that increasingly we're so polarized that there's there's we have different the, the two tribes live in different worlds. Yeah. Now, of course. Right-wing people can be made into celebrities on Fox News or vis-a-vis -vis the Daily Wire. There are these really powerful, impressive, well-funded, highly watched, read, et cetera, conservative institutions. They're just different institutions. And, uh, and that, that trend has accelerated over time. They're different institutions. We have different. Yeah, I think, I think that is, and this kind of goes back to something we were talking about in an earlier segment, which is, you know, what do we do about the fact that there are these 
financial uh, incentives to have increased polarization if all of the major news stations are corporate-run and are driven primarily by the profit motive, is there a role for government-sponsored, taxpayer-funded public public broadcasting that could ostensibly have different kinds of goals. It would have to be by design, there would have to be administrative protections built in, blah, blah, blah. But potentially that would be the hope of that kind of an organization. Mm. Meanwhile, and I would argue somewhat more substantive news on the trans front, North Dakota became the latest state to bar transgender girls and women from joining female sports teams on April 11th with the bar and transgender athletes starting from kindergarten through college. This is from the New York Times. These restrictions in North Dakota, signed by Governor Doug Burgum, came less than a week after the Biden administration weighed in on the debate over transgender athletes. The administration's proposed rule change would allow schools to block some transgender athletes from competing on sports teams that do not match their biological sex, but it would prevent the enactment of across-the-board bans. Mm. North Dakota's new laws and many others like it could be headed for a clash with federal regulation if uh, President Biden's proposed change takes effect. Some legal experts say the federal uh, instruction would override state laws. It's worthy to note, however, that there is no known case of a transgender girl even ever trying to join a girl sports team in that state. So interestingly enough, so the Obama-era Title IX guidance on uh, including trans people in school environments uh, made it very clear that—so they were interpreting this existing— federal law that's that's 50 years old and say, which I, I find—I I don't think this federal law, Title IX, has anything to say on this issue, and you would need a new law to cover this if you're going to do it at the federal level. But setting aside that, that uh, objection I have, they were interpreting this law to say that schools needed to provide— um, uh, it, it needed to allow a, a person to use the bathroom, locker room of their, of their chosen—not uh, of their biological sex, but of their chosen sex. But they very specifically stopped short of applying this to sports teams as well. That was under the Obama-era Title IX mm -hmm. guidance. And I, I remember <laughs> just say, like, regardless of how you think it should be, it seems so, like, evidently not correct to me that this, again, 50-year-old federal law is saying you have to go this far on trans stuff and not this, like, it just doesn't. You have to come up with a new law to cover that. But well, the reality is they have a new law um, in uh, North Dakota, and that law. Right, this is the state level. That was this the you know this is guidance to everyone in the whole country. Yeah, I'm just all, talking about this. Yeah, yeah, I'm just talking yeah. about the story. There's this new law at the state level that people, legislators in the state, took the time out of their day to pass and prioritize in their agenda when this has never even come up in the state. And I spoke to Aaron Reed on my show last week mm -hmm. about some of this legislation. And time after time, what ends up happening on a kind of a local basis, when it becomes clear that all these laws are meant to basically target like one fifth grader in Utah, you know, one, 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 one kid in a state, and the, these aren't the kind of top level, I think, more substantive conversations about what to do in the Olympics, what to do in competitive sports, mm -hmm. what to do in the scholarship, college, collegiate level, and things like that. This is a K through, this K through up ban. So this is this is saying. I mean, what is the implication of this? If there's, you know, are we saying that the the, the differences between a five year old on a t-ball team, a girl versus boy, trans trans kid versus not, is mm. it requires this kind of legislation? Whatever you think about it, that's what's going on now in North Dakota. Yeah, I mean, well, I think a conservative person would say if there's literally no one 
as there's an example of this, then what is the objection to doing this law? Yeah, I would say it's a race of resources, which is something that I think a lot of, I mean, you often point to, a lot of um, conservatives are very fiscally minded. Um, but I think it raises the question, why is this a priority? And is this the beginning of something more? Again, there are literally hundreds, hundreds of um, bills that have been promulgated, some of which would require gender, genital inspections of your children. Yeah, yeah. I look. I wait. No, no. Don't. Wait, wait, you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And brush that off when we get to the point. This is real. <laughs> Laws that will require genital inspections of your children in the name of being anti-pedophilia, and and rush through because of fear of transphobia. Is that is that the end point of this? And why are we doing things like this when ultimately there's very few. It trans people anywhere, especially young kids who are really trying to even be on anybody else's sports team. I, I would tend toward letting people, institutions, schools, teams, sports leagues, whatever, handle this on their own. I wouldn't yeah. presume to tell them how to handle this at the state or especially the federal level, so I would tend toward letting people work it out. Um, I certainly think, from my own experience coaching, like, grade school sports that there can be pretty stark differences in ability even at an early age. It's not, it's different in every sport. It's different at every professional level. I played on I a co-ed t-ball team and nobody was concerned by, about my safety, I gotta say. I'm not, and it's not, <laughs> no, it's not a concern of safety. It's a concern of athletic ability and making you think it I wasn't very for, You think I, I was a drain on my co-ed t-ball team because I'm a girl, Robbie? I, it, <laughs> These differences, I don't know at what age you're doing that, these differences do come out like at some point. I was like six or seven. Right, six, they can all, all the little boys and all the little girls can play together, it's fine. Well, that's, that's the point. This band okay, would not well, allow that. Well, I wasn't defending the band, okay, but so, there is an age at which there should be separation along these lines to keep it competitive, and, and we're going to erase the category of high-performing female athletes if we do this. Sure, so. but a nearly tailored law might be the best thing to get at that, so I don't know. We'll continue to follow these uh, stories, all the legislation that's coming down the pike, obviously. More rising for you right after this. A tech executive has reportedly been arrested for the stabbing murder of Cash App founder Bob Lee. Mission Local reports that the police were, quote, dispatched to Emeryville, California, with a warrant to arrest a man named Nima Momenti, Momini, excuse me. The name and Emeryville address SVPD officers traveled to match the identity and the owner of the owner of another tech company called Expand IT. Law enforcement told Mission Local that Lee and the suspect were driving together in San Francisco on April 4th and, quote, some sort of confrontation ensued in the car and continued after Lee left the vehicle. The car was reportedly registered to the suspect. Sources say that Lee was stabbed at least twice and that the murder weapon was recovered near the area where the stabbing occurred. So it appears they were traveling together mm -hmm. and uh, knew each other. And, you know, then at that point it becomes speculation that maybe some kind of argument or disagreement uh, broke out. We don't know very much about Nima Momeni, the alleged killer. Um, he is also in tech. Um, we tried to look up what Expand IT does. It sounds pretty nonspecific tech type it's tech, stuff. It's tech stuff. Um, so anyway, he, so he has been arrested. Um, you know, this is interesting because so so Bob Lee very moved left Silicon Valley, moved to Miami mm. um, because of he he said this on the record because of the the crime concerns he had 
about what's happening in California. Mm. And he was stabbed to death in Miami. Uh, he, um, he, um, so, so that people are pointing out to that, you know, how ironic that is. And then, but it turns out, so this is not a random crime the other way. Right. So, uh, you know, Excuse me, the, 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 he moved the, to Miami, he went back, back to San, San Francisco. Francisco, got So stabbed. there has been a whole yeah. discourse since the death, the murder of Bob Lee, yeah. about how the people who have these concerns about the safety of San Francisco are completely right. vindicated, that he, there was a kind of like predictive value of his concerns, and that there was something, you know, some kind of tragic poetic justice, not poetic justice, but like some, some tragic validation mm -hmm. of his worldview here. Of course, the pushback has been, and this is from a CNN piece uh, following the murder, uh, that San Francisco, whatever you think about it, however it presents, has lower, viol less violent crime and lower homicide rates than other cities of a similar size. This is just a big city issue. But all of that aside, whatever you think about the rightness or wrongness of assessments of San Francisco, it's not, it's not a rates, random attack. This was not a random attack. Yeah. So I do think there is going to be a number of people who are basically saying, I told you so in the wake of this tragic incident, that are going to have to retract their belief that this was a confirmation of their views about San Francisco's crime. Well, I mean, it goes to show you should always wait for, you know, more sure. facts before just just opining. Um, it's a it's a it's an odd situation. Yeah, honestly, even even as presented for a for a a stabbing in a car involving people who know each other. Um, so we'll have to learn, obviously, more about, you know, what went into this, who this guy is. It's, you know, was there drugs involved? Was there a psychiatric issue, et cetera? But uh, yes, it, it, it is interesting because of how much people pounced on the, uh, and, and the fact that he had left. And then, so he was visiting, I think, for a work trip. He was back in the area. And, uh, and it's very sad. He has, he's married. He has young kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, murder, sad anyway. But, uh, but um, I, I know the, uh, the family was very broken up about it. Um, horrific kind of death. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm just going, I'm trying to go back through and to see the kind of commentary that was happening about this before today. Um, Michelle Tandler, a kind of conservative leading commentator who has been the focus of a lot of conversation this week because of a TikTok that she did, that's another story, um, tweeted out on April 7th that there's a, dis a disturbing crime wave has hit San Francisco this week. Tech leader Bob Lee was stabbed to death. Cyclist Ethan Boyce was killed by a speeding car and former fire commissioner Don Carmen Gianni was brutally beaten by homeless addicts. If this isn't a wake-up call, what will be? You know, and that that's very indicative of the tenor of a lot of the commentator. Now, of course, a lot of progressives and liberals are now saying, I, I told you so in the other direction that, you know, but it, th this is a problem. I think too often that people's anecdotal experiences are used to make broader claims about safety levels in cities. And I do think there's absolutely a um, proliferation of um, people who are unhomed. You saw it blossom, I think, at least in D.C. during COVID. There were, there were so many tents everywhere, and it's very easy to use evidence of that as a correlation with broader crime trends, and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But I do think it's very easy to weaponize your individualized experiences, especially in ur urban environments where people are so concentrated, and you see so much more of what's going on in other people's lives than you do in mm -hmm. rural or suburban environments, and then make political claims that don't necessarily pan out. You know, to be clear, we should try to bring down the crime rate, the murder rate, regardless everywhere. of if, well, everywhere, and regardless of if you're being 
attacked by random strangers or by people. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. A, a violent attack is a violent attack, yeah. whether it's someone you know, whether it's some random person, etc. So, you know, we need to know more about the circumstances that went into this. Sure. But um, it would be, ideally, we would bring down the crime rate, the violence rate, regardless. It's not like, it's not really like, oh, well, it was known to him. It's still, <laughs> doesn't make any difference to him or his family. Sure, of I, course. I guess it I makes mean, people feel like it's more, le it's less it's likely, likely to, to happen, happen to, to them. them. That's that's the thing that causes yeah. people uh, similarly. And I think that the opposite right. of that is exactly why there is this... Um, you know, I don't want to, I'm trying to find a word that isn't a value judgment, because I think it's completely fair and legitimate to be concerned about violent crime wherever you live. Uh, but I do think that there is this, um, I got to say, as someone who grew up in a much less safe place, mm -hmm. uh, growing up overseas, spending a lot of time in Kenya, where there were a, a lot of carjackings uh, and kind of poverty-based mm -hmm. crimes like that, when there's a huge income disparity between expats and the local population, stuff like that happens. My expectations of safety, I've noticed when I, when I came back to the United States six months later, 9-11 happened. Like, my expectations of safety hmm. have always been different than I noticed from some of my American peers who've never been in a situation where you're kind of routinely on edge. And I'm not saying that's good. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's, it's not—I I don't want people to live in a world where they're constantly on the lookout for carjackings and double-triple checking if their door is locked and speeding up through intersections because, I mean, that, that is obviously not an ideal scenario. But I do sometimes think our relative safety here makes us very vulnerable to a certain kind of fear-mongering um, because these things just aren't supposed to happen to me. Uh, which is also why these kind of instances of random violence like this are terrifying. You know, if someone who's rich and successful like Bob Lee can be murdered, what chance do I have? And then there is this kind of, you know, kind of sick, sad relief when it, you realize it's an interpersonal dispute and not a broader trend. Well, look, it used to be the case um, that you could, you know, definitively, I mean, you can still say it, it's, it's gotten a little bit more confusing. You could point to a time in the past, right? The, the violence rate, the gun violence rate in America from the period of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, all the way up to, like, the drop begins, it's very abrupt. It begins in, like, 1993. Um, it, it was very high, and mm -hmm. then there was an extreme, extreme decrease in the level of violence from the mid to late 90s through the odds. And it, and still, compared to where we were at in, in the 80s and early 90s, we are much, we are way below that. Mm -hmm. So it used to be the case, but more definitively, that all the reporting about crime was missing the fact. Like, most people always thought crime was going up when if you looked at statistics, on, on, on a comparison to the world in which our parents and grandparents grew up, crime has dropped, like, like, 50%. There was some interesting Massive reduction. potential causes. Um, I mean, there was one 2022 study that said air that conditioning, seven lead. To, lead, seven yeah. to eight to 28% of the fall of homicide rates could be attributed to just getting unleaded yeah. uh, gasoline. Yeah, that was a theory. Um, you know, cities, th th there were some places where you know, low income people didn't have access to air conditioning until now that's much more uh, ubiquitous and that uh, cool, literally cools tempers. Yes. It's, you know, wild to think through some of these things. With COVID, with, you know, various things in the last few years, it's not everywhere. Yeah. There, and it's, it's, again, still nowhere close to where it was in the. In Philadelphia, it is pretty bad. I've mm. looked at the statistics. It's, it's, Basically equivalent to where they were back mm. then, but it's not true everywhere. So it's a little confusing. So we, you know, we got to be careful how we describe these things. But it, in some ways, in some places, 
there has been an uptick in property crimes and violent crimes. Most places, not anywhere near where it used to be in the 80s, although that's not true. Yeah, the well, you know, so. now we know why we, they keep it so cool in this uh, room, Brianna Bobby. is all, oh, oh so, that, so that you don't murder me? <laughs> or vice versa. <laughs> uh, never, never. Uh, what would I, oh, if I had to replace another host. No way, no way. <laughs> I'm glad to know that that's the reason why you're not going to murder me, Robbie. More rising right after this. A new court filing alleges that J.P. Morgan Chase executives knew of sex abuse and trafficking allegations against its then-client, Jeffrey Epstein, several years before the financial institution cut ties. That's according to a new report from CNN. Now, this complaint also reveals that as early as 2006, the bank's executives were aware of Jeffrey Epstein's alleged payments to his young victims. And what's more, reportedly bank officials later joked that he was a sugar daddy to girls, which is disgusting. Yeah, th this, this is, is wild. Underage girls. So keep in mind this timeline here, which you were helping me to figure out before we, we started um, this mm -hmm. segment, that he, they started investigating him in 2005. 2005. This J.P. Morgan rapid response team raised red flags as early as 2006 that Epstein was making these withdrawals of tens of thousands of dollars, $40,000, $80,000, several times each month, totaling three-quarters of a million dollars in a given year. And so the risk management team at this point um, said he should be classified as high risk, but continued to service him even after uh, he was convicted in 2008, serving 18 months in, in prison, and it took two years after that to flag Epstein's status as a sex offender. Okay, mm -hmm. two years after his, his first conviction. Then he remained a J.P. Morgan client until 2013. That's a 2008 conviction, 2013 gap. Okay. Um, it, it, this is all coming out because of this um, U.S. Virgin Island lawsuit that we covered earlier on the show. Uh, they were allowed to proceed, and now we're getting all of this stuff, including that a senior compliance manager referred to him as a sugar daddy, which really suggests that there was some kind of internal knowledge that something definitely untoward was going on here, and there was a choice to not raise any real significant red flags. Right. I mean, the complicating factor here is, I mean, at least through the, the period, so he pled guilty in 2008. Um, I don't know. People might disagree with this. I think what steps a bank is supposed to take, you know, we've objected to financial institutions effectively unpersoning people based on mere accusations of, for and for especially for ideological reasons. This obviously is actual crimes, mm -hmm. but you are presumed innocent until proven guilty. You're entitled to due process. I don't think I would say necessarily that I would want the bank to act while he is merely under investigation or even merely being prosecuted. Maybe some kind of suspension or something is is at the point of prosecution is called for. But I, you know, if they don't, if they wait to cut ties until after he is shown to be guilty, I think I would understand that. Now it is totally discordant with the norms that we've been criticizing um, lately, with you know people being thrown out of financial institutions. Or take you know large companies aren't going to work with them because of you know accusations of conspiracy theories or misinformation or racism or that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, let's just say what it is. It's it's the Kanye scenario. Yeah, it's whether or not I think that's it was fair. also J.P. Morgan in that case, wasn't it? I can't recall. Um, who cut ties with Kanye West 
over his anti-Semitic comments. And now there's this question of, you know, what is the difference between J.P. Morgan ch choosing to so quickly distance themselves from Kanye West, who, while anti-Semitic, didn't commit a crime, versus right. um, uh, Epstein, who very much was committing yeah, a crime. Yeah, there's no comparison to these things. What, what Kanye did is not, on any level, evil in the way that what Jeffrey Epstein I mean, did. It's, it's just it's, not, it's, it's... It's wrong, it's anti-Semitic, but it's... Yeah, a statement of anti-Semitism. Now, so a bank has, and it's also one thing to, that's a very purely ideological difference of opinion between a man and a bank. The bank is, in this case with Epstein, facilitating payments in furtherance of a crime with knowledge, allegedly. And I'm not sure, it would be maybe interesting to talk to a um, financial crimes expert mm -hmm. to see what obligations banks have to stop payments or intervene when they believe they are conducting, you know, they're doing things in furtherance of a crime. You know, I'm sure the standards are pretty low for what a bank's obliged to do because they are constantly in the mix mm -hmm. of um, all kinds of, I think, um, extra legal <laughs> behaviors. Uh, but it, but the contrast between how that particular situation with Kanye West, because it was just so recent, was handled, and what was apparently an ongoing understanding of Epstein's crimes and a choice to continue to participate is what is there might start. be liability. It might be the case that victims of Epstein could sue the bank. Yeah, for... potentially. I mean, that's. I mean, that's. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bank is being sued in the context of this lawsuit. The only um, thing I can think of yeah. that's right, that's kind of similar to this, is with um, uh, uh, Pornhub mm. had uh, it had some underage content or non-consensual content. And they weren't really doing anything about it until the credit card companies, because you can sign up for an account or you can pay for uh, for material that isn't free. The credit card companies s said they would not continue to work with the site because of the liability they would face for that kind of thing. Yeah, and those are, you know, people making kind of financial decisions and yeah. markets working the way that they do to limit liability. But this this yeah. US Virgin Islands case stands to I think be very revealing mm -hmm. in a lot of respects. I think there's been a, a lack of satisfaction in how the Epstein saga kind of came to a close because of the way he died and the inability to kind of play the case out the way that we had with uh, Jillian Maxwell at the very least. And there was a very, I remember us discussing it and it was very disgusting, um, the things it employed, it was a JP Morgan employee, was I, it not, I, who was I, I making believe... comments about Revealing a, a, a deep friendship with Epstein and a, and a level of hinting at a level of knowledge of the kind of things Epstein was up to that was absolutely disgusting. Yeah. There's been, I think, four bankers that have been subpoenaed in this case. I, I can't imagine mm -hmm. that we're not going to be able to continue to cover this in really substantive and interesting ways as we know more. I mean, because, you know, the expanse, the, the extent of the crimes that Jeffrey Epstein committed we're not the kind, you know, that, that kind of volume, that kind of reach is not possible on one's own. And so I do think that, especially in the wake of him um, dying the way that he did, people are really looking for some accountability mm -hmm. beyond him. And it's, it's, it's looking like it's coming. And it's looking like these kind of financial institutions are not going to be able to uh, evade um, some kind of responsibility if only in the public eye. So we will definitely continue to look at this story and cover that. Yeah.
it's uh, and, and of course there's the whole Bill Gates element to it that you know Bill Gates continued to be interested in perhaps doing business with Jeffrey Epstein uh, well beyond the point again it's one thing before anyone knows but the, you know, he's having conversations emails that have been revealed um, caution uh, his wife ex-wife now Melinda Gates urging caution uh, a, a desire to potentially have a continued relationship with Epstein even after the period in which he was he pled guilty yeah. for involvement in sex crimes with minors. Yeah. That seems at least at the very least the point at which one cuts social ties. Right. If not financial ties that maybe put your entire company right. at risk of prosecution or criminal liability or right. civil liability or any of those things. Yeah, I think the um Incredible. The, the banker that we we're talking about before by the way. So the, this 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 lawsuit was filed by an unidentified woman. We don't know who she is, but it has been focused on uh, this this Jess Staley, uh, a banker who ran J.P. Morgan's private bank, mm -hmm. um, and that's I think some of the conversations we're talking about were these emails uh, about Disney characters that might have been code names but seemed inappropriate and mm -hmm. vague and weird. So if you haven't watched that segment, go back and, and watch us discuss uh, the last revelations from the uh, Virgin Isle, uh, Islands case, and we'll continue to follow it. Tomorrow on Rising, of course, we'll have guest host Jason Nichols in an statement. They will be here for a fun new Friday pairing. I'm excited to look at that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you can hear podcasts, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.